Romans 1, 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. All right, well, good morning, good afternoon, actually, it is. Uh, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here. Thanks for, um, for joining us. If you're tuning in online, if you didn't realize what you were watching, you just dipped in as it fell down your news feed, thank you for being here with us. And for everyone who's here and in masks and a part of our gathering, thanks for taking the effort to be a part of our Sunday gathering. We are in, I think it's week 22 of Weird Church, but if it's your first time visiting church, it might be weird anyway, so it's just all in the mix, so that's great. But um, it's, um, it's great to still be able to continue to encourage one another, to meet face-to-face, um, and to be able to, to dig into God's Word and see what He really has to say to us. Uh, as I mentioned last week, we need to know the Gospel. If you're here and a follower of Jesus, um, you are charged to pass this message on to the next generation. Um, and part of that, as I mentioned last week, is we're redoing kids' ministry at the moment at our 11 a.m. service. And so if you would love to help out in, in doing the most important task that you could be a part of, which is passing on the gospel to the next generation, we would love a few extra volunteers to help out, particularly with our lower infants uh, groups. And so if you could do that, you can speak to Anne, who's in the green. Just in the, do you want to give everyone a wave, Anne? Sorry for everyone tuning in online, you cannot just imagine Anne there, um, but if you could speak to her about that, she'd love to hear from you if you reckon you could help out. But as, um, as Tom mentioned, we're in a series called Deep, and we're now three weeks into it, and the first two weeks have been great, digging into what is at the very heart of God. The first week, we saw that God has a passion for His own glory, and then we saw last week that this isn't just a, a, a narcissistic, self-centered God that actually God is beyond our understanding. He is both three and one, Father, Spirit, and Son. And I don't know if you've noticed, but over the weeks, even though we called this series deep, we've really only been able to skim off these incredibly deep topics. We didn't want to call it just skimming the surface because it's not as catchy a title, I guess, for a series. It's not quite as compelling. But really, we've been just, just skimming into it. We really didn't even last week have a chance to dive into the, the individual personhood of the Father and the Spirit and the Son. We didn't get, in to get to dive into the fact that the Father, if you look through the Gospels, just delights in His Son. That God is this family of love who's existed for, throughout all eternity. Where, a family where like each is about the other family member, like the perfect family. Where the Father is just like, look at my Son, look at Jesus, how pleased I am with Him, check Him out. And while He walked on earth, Jesus was like, I give all glory to my Father. And then He says to His disciples the night before He's going to die, Look, I know you want me to stick around for a long time, but it's better that I go. When the Holy Spirit comes, my gosh, He's going to show you some things. And the Holy Spirit shows up and shows them what it's like to live with God as your Father. And then He shows them Jesus and how much Jesus loves us in dying on the cross for us. And so all of this to say is that really... As, as we get through the Sundays, and even if you're a part of a small group here, 
we're really only skimming the surface. Our hope is that you will dive deeper into your own faith if you are a follower of Jesus and do your own heavy lifting to get into it. Each week we put the studies online so that you can follow things up if you've got deeper questions or things you want to press into. Our hope is that you'll walk out your own faith. Because if ISO taught us anything, it's that we need to walk out our own faith with God. And if you're here and you're someone or you're tuning in online and you wouldn't call yourself particularly spiritual or religious, my hope is that you will ask the deep questions that need to be asked about your worldview. That you drill it right down to the foundations and the pillars to work out what it is that you believe and why. Because we need to know what we believe and know it deeply. And the doctrine that we're coming to this week, as Tom mentioned, is probably the one that's most uncomfortable. I think I said at the beginning of the series that if the gospel is true, it will in many ways affirm and offend every culture around the world. Christianity is the only of the major world religions that has been able to move on from its original center, and it's moved on to different cultures. And as I said in the first week, the gospel touches on, on different pressure points in each culture. I was talking to a family who are in our group who did a lot of work overseas in Southeast Asia. For them, in sharing the gospel in that particular cultural context, the issues of sin and hell were, were not particularly difficult. In fact, that was kind of par for the course. The doctrine that was most difficult in their context was the idea of forgiveness. The idea that you could do wrong and God would just let it go somehow seemed unfathomable. And so the question is, well, why, why is the doctrine of sin and hell particularly difficult for a Western culture? I want to give you three reasons as we dig into Romans 1 as to why it is that, that this one seems to wrongfoot us in a Western culture particularly. Every culture has a view about why the world is bad. No one is so naive to not think it needs explaining as to why it is that the world is in the state that it's in. But every culture has a different approach to it. And for us, there are a few features that have come through. We're a scientific culture. And so one of the first ways of viewing what's wrong with the world is to say, it's probably what you'd call the bad hardware theory. The idea that it's our nature, our biology. That's what makes us do bad things. Ultimately, we're just a, a bunch of atoms and molecules and in the end, what we do is mostly because of the way that we're made up biologically. So, for example, Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene is kind of a, a naturalist look at why it is that we do wrong things. We're just kind of, we're built that way. It's our hardware. That's one explanation. And there's some rightness to that. Our biology does affect us and our behavior. The second one would be probably from the social sciences more so, saying, well, it's not so much bad hardware as bad software. It's our input, our background, our family of origin. This is what really shapes our behavior and is ultimately responsible for when we do things wrong. It's our background. And of course, there's a truth to that. The things that we've experienced, the families that we've come from, our stories make up a big part of us and impact the way we see the world, ourselves and others, and has a huge impact on how we act. The third one then is probably what we'd call maybe political science. And it's the idea that what's wrong with the world is not so much bad hardware or even necessarily bad software, but bad power and bad power structures in particular. The thing that's wrong with the world are corrupt political systems. And you, you don't need to put in much work to see how much of an impact a bad political system can have. It's horrendous. And so all of these views tend to build up why it is we... Why it is that we think the world is not the way it should be. And all of these are fair points. And in fact, you'll find evidence for all of these in the scriptures. 
But I also think that none of them on their own or even together quite go far enough to answer the problem of what's wrong with the world. When it comes to bad hardware, it is the case that we don't accept the excuse that someone can do something wrong and just say, well, it's just the way I am. We have systems of justice and courts of law that will not accept that as special pleading for having done something wrong. Not only that, but similarly with, with bad software, the idea that just my, my environment is why I act the way I do is also quite disempowering. To think that I can't change, I'm just the sum total of the things that have happened to me is in a sense disempowering, but it's also, we realize, not a, a valid excuse sometimes for the things that we do wrong. We are responsible. We are moral agents. And lastly, the idea of bad power, it is right to want to overthrow unjust systems. But the problem is that systems aren't made up of just bad people out there, that all of us seem to have an issue. And when one system gets overthrown, it tends to be replaced with one that's just as bad, if not worse. And if we're waiting, if our personal well-being is dependent on finally being under a perfectly just system, we're going to be waiting for a long and anxious time. The truth is, bad people aren't just out there. Now, I think the Bible's description that the main issue that the world has is sin is one that is comprehensive enough. I think it explains what we see in the world and even if we're willing to admit it, what we see in ourselves. It's a deep and comprehensive view of the world and what's wrong with it. But more than that, in the Bible, we have a deep and comprehensive answer about what God is going to do about it. And so I'm going to pray that as we dig into this, that God would open our eyes and hearts to see what He really has to say on this matter. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would hear Your Word and see what You have to say to us. And Father, we pray that we would do it for the sake of Your holy name. We pray that we would see Your Word and Your truth. We would understand who we are and most of all, who You are that you are a God who speaks into this world, into the evil and wickedness that is in this world, and is not an idle God who will do nothing about it, but you will act. And Father, we pray that, that through this time as we open your word, you would deepen our trust in you and our love for you, and all this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, the first thing we're looking at, really from the passage that Tom opened up for us before, is what it is that the Bible is talking about when it's talking about sin. When we hear that word, there might be many images or ideas that come to mind. But the question is, what does, what does the Bible itself think it's talking about when it comes to sin? And so we start with Romans 1.18, and I'll read through to 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exclaimed the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. At the heart of the Bible's definition of sin is the issue of worship. And it's a failure to worship the true and living God and instead to worship something less than God as though it were God. 
All humans were made to love something. And love, love works very simply like this. Whatever you, whatever you enjoy, you love. The more you enjoy something, the more you love it. Love is a desire for something or someone, and you want to be with that thing or person because it brings you joy. And you can say without contradiction that I love chocolate or I love going for a run or I love a good meal, and those are all kind of lowercase l loves. But it is the case that every human being, capital L, loves something. There is one thing that we enjoy the most, the thing that we cannot live without, the thing that if we have, life is together, and if we don't have it, life is not worth living. Everyone has one thing that they, capital L, love. And what we saw from the previous two weeks is that we were made by a loving God to love God, to worship the thing that is most glorious, most brilliant in the universe, to love God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That God is a being of perfect love, and He made us to love Him and to be in relationship with Him. And really, it was not, we saw it was not arrogance on His part to call us to love Him because He simply is the biggest thing and most glorious thing in all reality. All wise, perfect, holy, divine, kind, loving. There is no one or nothing like God. We were made to love God. And sin is when we look at God and we go, you are not the greatest thing in the universe. Something that you made is what I'm going to live for. And so in Romans 1, we get this definition. It says, we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for living things, for the stuff He's made. In short, we worshipped the created rather than the creator. Instead of worshipping the creator, instead of seeing what He made and thinking, wow, how good must the God be who made this? Instead, we lived for the very things that He made. Ultimately, Sin is a love problem. And in this passage, we're told how God feels about it. He's not passive about it. He's not sulking about it. It says here that he's angry about it. The opening line is, the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness. When God is dishonored, when we fail to honor God, when we look at something that he has made and say that is actually greater than the maker himself, God is angry about it. See, it is the case that instead of loving the designer and praising him, instead we have loved the things that he's made without any reference to him. Sin ultimately is saying to God, I'll take your things and I'll use them however I please, but as for my relationship with you, it's as though you weren't even there. And God is angry about it. And I think to be honest... If we were treated in the same way, we would consider it a reasonable response to be angry about it. Consider it maybe in this way. Imagine a husband bought his wife a ring to celebrate an anniversary. And she took the ring and sold it to buy a night in a hotel with her lover. Think of the the magnitude of that kind of insult. To say to someone, our relationship means so little to me that I will take the things that you give me and use it to move away from this relationship rather than toward it. I mean, imagine how demeaning that action would be. It would be right to be angry about that, wouldn't it? It would be fitting. Romans 1 describes sin in this way. It's when we take God's things and we say, God, I will have that, but I will use it however I like without any reference to you or any relationship with you. 
We take the things that he has made, whether sex or relationships or material things or power, and we say, God, I'll have this, but I want nothing to do with you. We exchange the glory of the immortal God, the one who made us to enjoy these things that he created with him, and we say, instead of that, I'll do things by myself, and we separate ourselves from him. Romans 1 tells us that sin is primarily about glory. It's about saying something that is not God is more glorious than the God who made it. And for this reason, the way Bible, the Bible talks about sin, it is primarily a vertical issue before it's a horizontal one. It's primarily a break in relationship with our Creator before it's a break in relationship with other humans. And the logic goes like this. If we will devalue God Himself, then to devalue other people is almost a lesser issue. That once we have broken relationship with our Creator, we end up breaking relationship with one another. Once we will trample on what is most precious in the universe, we are willing then to trample on anything else. This is how the Bible describes the brokenness of our world. That in the first place, it's a break in relationship with our good and loving Creator that then fractures all other relationships and reverberates throughout things. We fail to give thanks, we fail to honor God, and because of this, the world is in the state that it's in. And for this reason, God says sin is an issue. Says the, the passage there said, we are without excuse. That we will stand before a holy God and we'll not be able to give excuse for what we've done. It's personal. It's not, he's not an impersonal force. Sin is personal and it is moral. And it's reasonable for him to be angry in this. And that's why we read what we see in the next chapter, in Romans 2, 5 to 8. Have a look at what it says here. It says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The Bible holds that there will be a day of judgment where God will call into accounts. It says for those who have done good, who have sought the glory of God, it will be good news. And for those who have rejected Him, there will be judgment. And I don't know how you feel when you read those words. It's a significant claim, isn't it? For me, a few years ago when I read the biography of Joseph Stalin, I remembered reflecting, particularly after reading the end of it on his death, that a man who caused so much death and destruction, that he caused so many deaths that, it's, that people aren't actually quite sure how to tally it up. But somewhere, some of the conservative est estimates towards sort of 10 to 15 million, and at the higher end, 25 and beyond. And that's just deaths, let alone the suffering and the pain that this one man was responsible for. And yet he died without ever facing a court of justice. He died relatively peacefully. And for me it is some kind of a comfort to know that he would not get away with it. That there would be a day of reckoning for that man and men like him. But in reading this, the bad news that Paul says is that it is true that those like that will be judged. But the issue from Romans 3.23 is that all of us have a sin break with, with God, have a, have a break in relationship with God. In Romans 3.23 it says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. No one has done it. No one has lived perfectly rightly. 
all of us have worshipped the creation rather than the creator and faced this break in relationship with God. Now the issue is, of course, not everyone has caused the same amount of damage to others. In fact, this is probably the part of the gospel that at least culturally we find hardest to swallow. I mean, we get it. For the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world, yeah, they should face some kind of judgment. But the idea that all have fallen short of the glory of God, isn't it a bit of an overreaction from God? But I think it's the case that while all of us have not contributed to the suffering of others, like say a Hitler or a Stalin, that all of us have sinned and are part of a broken world. We've contributed to it. Let me illustrate it this way. Years ago, it probably like would have been mid-2000s, there was a movie that came out with, with the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. It was called Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. If you're having a bad week, don't watch this film. It would just make you so sad. It's one of those ones where everyone in the film is a horror. There's no redemption for anyone. It's, it's a real downer. But um, the, story, the story is compelling, though. Like It's hard to look away. It, it, it um, kind of orbits around the protagonist, Andy, who is um, a guy just down on his luck, doesn't have a lot going for him, has some debts and things like that, and decides that the way he's going to get ahead in life is he's going to rob a jewelry store. And he comes up with the insane idea of robbing his own parents' jewelry store, with the mentality being that he knows how the shop operates, they'll be able to do it in a way where nobody gets hurt, the place is insured, so he knows that his parents won't be financially sort of burdened by it. So he comes up with what he thinks is a genius plan, and he brings along two friends on the job to get it done, but he doesn't tell them that this is his parents' shop. Long story short, the robbery goes foul. One of the, the goons that he brought along with him ends up shooting his mum, and she dies. And the whole rest of the film, is, I won't spoil the rest of it, but you know what, I, I don't want you to be sad, so maybe don't watch it anyway. But uh, the whole rest of the film is kind of just watching the chaos that has unfurled from this single bad decision. And the thing that he can't wrestle with is that he's, he's trying to get himself off the hook by saying, I didn't do the wrong thing, I wasn't the one who did it. But the family keeps saying, but, but it was your decision to do this. I mean, you might not have done the worst part of it, but you were certainly a part of what happened. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have wanted a world where we say, God, we'll take your stuff, but we want nothing to do with you. And we are in a world of our own making, where if we would devalue what is even most valuable in the universe, then what more would we do to one another? We're in a world that is broken, and it would be so easy if the brokenness was just out there, but it's a part of us too. We've contributed to this world. And so it says there will be a day of judgment. The claim in the scriptures is that there will be the wrath of God for eternity for those who choose to be separated from their God. This is the doctrine of hell. The consequence of sin is the wrath of God forever. Separation from Him under His anger for eternity. And if I'm honest... This is not a part of the Bible that I like to speak on. And in fact, if I were writing the Bible, I probably wouldn't have put it in here. It's one of those, but it's one of those areas where we really don't get to choose. In fact, you know, I've, I've read widely enough now, and I imagine you have too, that you know that you could probably find someone with a PhD who would say, yeah, look, if you just get into the Greek or the Hebrew, you'll see actually the Bible doesn't really mean that. You can kind of look sideways and squint, and it, actually it all turns out great for everyone. And you can find someone who would back up pretty much any position you like when it comes to Scripture. 
But I challenge you, as I've done this week, to open the pages of Scripture and see for yourself what God is saying. Because I think the teaching of the Bible is plain. Sin is a real issue. It attracts the wrath of God. And there will be a judgment day. And we need to sit with that, as uncomfortable as that truth is, and to wrestle with it. But one thing that has helped me in looking over this this week is that we don't wrestle with this in abstract from the person of Jesus himself. Just consider this. When you open the Gospels, you will see the most loving person who has ever lived. That Jesus himself was one who was more loving than anyone else. He didn't discriminate according to social class or status or money. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes and showed grace and kindness to the people who were most outcast in that society. He spoke truth to power and he did it fearlessly. He showed no prejudice. He called us to love our enemies and he didn't just call people to do it. He lived it out perfectly. Instead of bringing strife and tension, he brought peace where he went. And yet, Jesus is the one who speaks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. The most loving person who has ever lived was warning people not to go there and was saying that he was the way to find the way out, to find real relationship back with God, to have that relationship mended. And next week, as we look at the cross, we're going to see exactly how it is that Jesus does that and brings us back in a relationship with our Creator and solves the issue of sin and hell. But he warned on it. And not only that, but his life demonstrated just how bad sin can be. Before Jesus would have come along, we could say, ah, God is so whatever about sin and stuff. It's not that, you know, it's not that bad a thing. It's not like we'd kill God. And yet when God came to earth and spoke peace and mercy and love, he was murdered for it. Jesus was the most loving and merciful person that has ever lived. The one who, even while he was being murdered, cried out, Father, forgive them to the people he was dying for. And he is the one, ultimately, who will carry out the final judgment. Is there anyone who could be more fair or more equipped to judge than Jesus himself? And so I challenge you, as you think about these things, to consider the person of Jesus and to open the Bible for yourself. But in applying this, I want to land with one final story of Jesus' life. Jesus sat down to, a, he was invited to a dinner with a bunch of religious men who considered themselves to be the kind of people that God would accept. And he sits down to have a meal with them and a woman comes in and we're not told much about who she is, only that all the religious leaders at the time deemed her a sinner, whatever that meant. And she comes in and pours oil on Jesus' feet and worships him. She gets that this is God in the flesh, come to save his people. And she worships him. And all the religious men get all bent out of shape about it and they're upset about it and they wanted to leave. And Jesus takes it as a teaching opportunity. He turns to one of the religious men named Simon and he says to him, Simon, listen to this statement and consider what, I, what you think. He says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And he who has been forgiven little loves little. She is a sinner and yet she has shown me all this love. And yet walking in this room, you haven't shown me so much as a common greeting. And he leaves it there. And his point for anyone reading is clear. 
These men considered themselves to be righteous in and of themselves. They didn't imagine that when they would meet God that they'd need much forgiving because they were good people. And yet this woman, who was very conscious of her sin or sinful past, understood God and received mercy from Him. He who he was forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. I wonder for us over this week if part of the reason we can love God so little is that we don't think we've been forgiven that much. That maybe we've bought into the, hard, the hardware argument or the software argument or the bad power argument. We think bad people are kind of out there. God hasn't had to forgive me of much. But I'd challenge you to reflect on the scriptures and see how deep God had to go to save you and to love you. It is the case that he who's been forgiven much will love much. And so the challenges we've been doing one each week is this for this week. To write out just a small psalm of praise, we write out a confession of sin. It's an ancient tradition. And one that isn't just about the consequences or how it impacts my life or that I didn't reach my potential, but that, that sin was something that I did deliberately, morally to God, that he is forgiven in Jesus and to praise him for what he has done. Let's pray that God would do a deep work in our hearts. Father, we praise you that you are loving and forgiving, merciful, kind, righteous, good and true. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to read your word for all it's worth. That we would know the depths of sin, not that we might be buried in guilt and shame, but that we might just be overcome by the love and forgiveness that Christ won for us on the cross. Father, we pray that you would show us with greater depth how deep a work you have done, that we might praise you and love you all the more for it. And Father, we pray all these things for the glory of your name. Amen.